Hello everybody, I am back. And wow, I had surprises for you planned out in my head while I was traveling, but I'm so sorry. My destination did not have what I needed to be able to upload episodes. And, oh my gosh, I did not have access to social media, which was wild in itself. But my family enjoyed our little reunion without internet, although I did want to bring you those weekly shorts with recorded sounds of the ocean, bird calls, whatever was out there in the jungle and along the ocean. Well, the background sounds that you hear now are the ocean and tropic birds and the jungle fowl. Our niece Sarah sang as she played her ukulele in the jungle as well as alongside the ocean. It was inspiring and peaceful. Well, now moving forward with today's show. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello, this is Catherine, host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. And as always, a huge thank you to Chris for permission to use some of his music on this podcast, including Elevated Intentions, in which he composed for Your Positive Imprint. Check out Chris and his music at chrisnoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Sign up for email updates, yourpositiveimprint.com. And I've got a question. Are you interested in being part of a YPI group forum? Send me an email, Catherine at yourpositiveimprint.com, or of course, direct message me. Let me know and thank you. And, of course, a big thank you for listening and supporting this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbeam, well, your favorite podcast platform. Keep listening. Thank you. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? My guest today says that the transition to clean energy is moving far too slowly. And you know, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Bill Nussie founded the Freeing Energy Project, which is a mobilization plan to move the talents and energies of entrepreneurs worldwide, as well as global policymakers and all communities towards a cleaner, cheaper, and more resilient local energy future. But what is awesome about his positive imprint is that his project is power by the people for the people. That means it's up to you and me collectively. And that's key, collectively. The electricity industry is being reinvented. And Africa, well, I hope he's going to talk about Africa off-grid. And he has a parable, the Monopoly parable, which makes sense. And of course, the parable teaches a lesson. Well, my favorite, he doesn't know this yet, but he does now. My favorite, absolute favorite line of his from his book is, In Search of Energy Freedom. Well, it is clear from my intro that Bill authored a book, but it's not just about clean energy or how to invest in it. (laughs) 
I love this book. I can't wait till he talks about the book because he's going to demystify clean energy. Here is the man himself as he debunks a century of misinformation regarding renewable energy. Bill Nessie, welcome to your positive imprint. Thank you very much, <laughs> Catherine. That's an incredibly flattering uh, introduction. Uh, and I'm just thrilled that some of the parts of the book spoke to you. That makes makes my day. Thank you. Oh, you are welcome. I have all sorts that I have outlined that I want to talk about. But before we get to Freeing Energy, which is the title of your book, let's talk about Bill first. Oh, I, I th thank you very much again. Uh, I think that my story has an interesting origin in that, uh, you know, I grew up in, in the 80s, 70s and 80s and 90s. And I think a lot of what I have ended up pursuing as a as an adult, both professionally and to some degree personally, was born out of the fact that I, I can't throw a ball 10 feet and hit a wall. <laughs> and and so when back when every little boy was supposed to play sports and I was terrible at it, my father um, was just absolutely embarrassed to see me uh, on a, on any kind of ball field. Uh, I stumbled into this thing in the public library or in the school library. It was called a computer terminal. And this would have been in the late seventies. And it, later on, I ended up, my parents got me a microcomputer, a TRS-80, which most people don't even remember. And the first time I saw that Catherine, I, it, it spoke to me. It made more sense than anything I'd ever met in my life. I fell in love with it. Through it, I could do things and, and become somebody that I could never have imagined, never saw. I was born at the right time, exactly the right time, the beginning of the computer revolution, born out of my weaknesses, stumbling into my strengths. I fell in love with technology and uh, I love it. I love what technology can do to business and to society. I also lament the problems it can create too. I have spent my entire career chasing and, and occasionally being a small part of these technology revolutions starting with a personal computer, with the internet, with digital marketing, and uh, now with, I think, what will be the largest technology revolution in the history of technology is the transition to clean energy. So all that kind of played together is a single theme that uh, was born out of um, searching to do something that really I could truly be passionate about. And I feel very lucky that I've been doing that for a couple decades now. Some of my podcast episodes are edited on my laptop, in which electricity is generated through our ground solar panels. It is an awesome setup. Bill has traveled all over the world and has seen extensive use off-grid with solar panels. I have been all over the world, across Europe, Asia, Africa, understanding how electricity affects people's lives. And some of those stories were riveting and inspiring and the one that i always that i like to tell that you you might enjoy is we were deep in kenya's bush meeting with people that had uh, only recently and many had never had electricity and they were too remote for the utilities to pull power lines so they were using these brand new state-of-the-art solar home systems uh, which is a small solar panel and a uh, few lights uh, sometimes a television and What's remarkable about these systems is that 10 years ago, it wasn't affordable for even for a lot of these folks who live on three, five dollars a day. And the technology has become so widespread, so inexpensive, just like the pieces in our cell phones or smartphones. They become so affordable 
that enormous markets have built up, enormous entrepreneurial ventures have been created across Africa, particularly to provide affordable products, uh, solar powered products to these people that have had no technology in their lives. And one of the stories I, I really changed me was we were visiting this mud hut home of a man named uh, Francis. And he was telling us that he had had children, but he had not been a good father and husband. And so he had left him, but he pointed to the roof of his place. And there was all these dark marks up there. And he said, this was the kerosene, the residue from the kerosene lamps that his children used to study for school. And he said, it just broke his heart to watch them. And uh, because they were choking, their eyes were watering. And I had sat in several huts with people and experienced it. And it was far more uncomfortable than I could have imagined and I can describe, but they lived with it. And, and but now he has a solar home system and mm -hmm. solar is powering his, and the room was well lit, even though it was inside. And uh, he said, I said, where do you think you go from here? And he said that there's this woman who lives about a mile away and she doesn't have one of these. And so she comes to his house every day to get a, ch to charge her phone. And he said, he thinks that she might start, she's starting to warm up to him and she, he might, she might like him. And, uh, and he hoped that she would come to fancy him because he was starting to fancy her. And it was just remarkable how this electric, this electricity system, this, this uh, transistors and, and circuits and batteries was changing this man's life. And in his mind, it translated into a potential love story, a tragedy and a love story. And, you know, we take electricity for granted so much here yes, in the United States absolutely. that those, there's not a lot of love stories about electricity, but in the rest of the world, it's amazing what a difference these systems can make. When you were growing up, did you ever think about the rest of the world not having electricity or technology? I didn't. You know, I was a traditional suburban kid, uh, though my father was very ill and he passed away very early. So that was an unusual part of my growing up and it had a big impact on who I became. But other than that, we, we went to the swimming pool and we went to our classes. So no, I, I really didn't understand the world. And back then, very few people traveled globally. And that's something that with my, my children, we've taken them all over the planet. But uh, no, I didn't have much of a world view other than the commercials I saw on television where Sally Struthers would tell you yeah. uh, to give $10 and pay for, pay for uh, food for this child you see, which I did. But it didn't, it didn't touch me. It wasn't personal. It felt very right, remote, right. just like all the other things I saw on television. Yeah. It wasn't until I was older that it really clicked. How could somebody, aside from listening to today's podcast, how could somebody capture a worldview of what really is out there? Because we are isolated in that sense, because we have everything that we need. How can we help people understand what happens beyond the borders geographically? There's no better path to wisdom than travel. And there's, it's never been easier and cheaper to travel. So uh, not everybody can afford the time or the money to get on a plane. If you're willing to be flexible, you can go travel to Europe. You can go travel to South America. You can travel to Africa sometimes uh, for uh, surprisingly little money if you're flexible and don't need to stay in a four-star hotel. And so I, I think my best advice is to go, go see the world. And if nothing else, just get in the car or get in a bus and go visit some part of the United States uh, that you haven't seen before. You know, when I was a, I was a freshman in college and I had traveled a little bit, but my father was ill and we hadn't done much. And I just got this hankering to go to Outward Bound in Maine. 
and I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, and my parents had very little money. And the only way I could afford was to take a bus. So here I was 18 years old, had never been on a bus before, didn't even know what it was. And I got in a bus and drove up the East coast and landed in near Penobscot Bay outside of Maine and met people and did things I never did before. And, and to me, the, the theme there, which I try to recreate throughout my entire life is to seek discomfort. Don't, don't seek to be unsafe, but seek discomfort to do things that you can't see yourself doing. And that experience, the people that I met, what I learned about myself and outward bound in particular, but generally being out in the wilderness in a place I'd never been, a place unlike anything I'd ever been seen before was remarkable. And it set me on a journey of pushing myself to do things that, that others may not choose to do, but I recommend it. Just go out there and meet people and see things that you can't see yourself doing, but you're kind of intrigued about. Yeah. Well, I do want to say, I'm sorry you lost your dad and at you. so young, and I'm sure that was difficult. And, but he certainly uh, was there to teach you these values. So you were talking about Africa. It's just so far and expensive to pull to the grid. With solar coming in, how will this change Africa now with clean energy, renewable energy, solar energy that they can carry, literally move from place to place. Remarkable the effect that electrification has on any society. And if you need proof of that, if you want to see patterns that show us where Africa will go, the uh, just look back at the United States in the 30s and 40s when 40% of the United States didn't have electricity. And FDR uh, rolled out the Rural Electrification Act, I think 1936-35, and it provided the funding and the legal mechanisms to basically provide electricity for rural United States. And many people attribute that to being the, the real rise of the United States as a, as a powerful nation, as a wealthy nation. And, and you apply those same lessons to Africa, but we no longer require you to pull those expensive wires. Mm -hmm. You can build the small-scale systems. And in the people who, the thousands, tens of thousands of people who devote their lives to helping parts of Africa achieve this, and I should be clear to say that many parts of Africa are wealthy and would be familiar to those of us in urban or suburban United States, but proportionally, there are much larger numbers of people in Africa and smallholder farmers, subsistence farming. And, and so those are the folks like rural Americans that have very few means and relatively low education, and it's hard to close that gap. And and so people who focus on this call it climbing the energy ladder. And there's usually several different steps that are well-defined, and there's papers by government and non-government institutions that write about what it means. But the first part is to just be able to charge mobile phones, which people aren't aware that almost everyone on the planet Earth has a mobile phone, no matter how poor they are. And in places like Africa and India, especially poor parts, the all the banking is done on mobile phones. And, and banking is one of those big enablers. I can pay you, you can pay me, I can get a loan, a small loan, a micro loan. And that's essentially what they're doing with these small electricity solar battery systems is you get a micro loan for a $50 or a $250 US system and you pay for it 30, 40 cents a day. And and what's the entrepreneur and the technologist in me loves that what, that what happens is these systems have a little dial pad, a little keypad, like on a telephone, and you wire in 40 cents typically, 
and then it gives you a code on your phone and you go to that type that code into your solar home system and unlocks the system for 24 hours and this actually does so many downstream benefits because it provides credit history so is this family or is this person going to be able to pay back a loan for a stove or for maybe a scooter or a motorcycle and they can look at their credit history on their solar electric system solar battery systems this, the goodness that as you climb the energy ladder is so profound it's exponential in terms of creating downstream mm -hmm. benefits the next level and we won't go into all of it but the next level is really profound as well and this is what they call productive use and this is where the solar battery system actually provides the means for somebody to run a business these solar battery systems are changing the world by improving lifestyles and economics for individuals and families so one woman i spoke to there sabina she told me the story about how the solar battery system allowed her to run her little shop at night. It was just simply too dark and kerosene was too expensive and dangerous. And now she keeps her store open and up until dinner or after dinner. And that allows people to come and buy the various little things that she sells. And this shop was the size of the closet right in front of my, my office here. So it was a modest shop, but this allowed her to provide more food and, and school books for her children. But you can take that up another level. People open barbershops. One of the big uses of productive use, whether you love it or hate it, is bars. People go after hours, there's lighting, there's refrigeration, and they use these solar battery systems to provide refrigeration, but also healthcare systems. One of the big things that I was delighted to learn about was how much these solar battery systems provide for women's rights and women's opportunities. What happens very often in these rural poor communities is that women are stuck with the most laborious tasks, often taking the cell phones and walking a mile, two, three, four miles just to get them charged and return home, going and getting water and returning home. And so they spend a disproportionate percentage of their day doing things that are to make it difficult for them to become educated and to produce small businesses and to be more interactive with the communities. So these productive use systems can go all the way up to a small factory where maybe they're gathering some some plants, some crops, and they can process them before taking them to market and sell them for a much higher amount of money. And one of my favorite stories, and I'll wrap up with this one, and it's covered heavily in the book, is a company called Sun Culture. One of my heroes is, is Samir Ibrahim, and he's started from scratch, what's now the largest solar irrigation, solar-powered irrigation company in Africa. And again, who knew? I was out there. I had no idea. We went and visited some of his customers, and it turns out that smallholder farmers traditionally only have two times a year where it rains. It's very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it rains a lot. Sometimes it doesn't rain much. And there's a very small number of crops that can survive that difference in water. So they, and there's a very, they're the, the least valuable crops. But if you have irrigation, which you can do for about 40, 50 cents a day with these brand new super techie systems, you can grow high value crops year round. And so this is like winning, the, I mean, metaphorically, this is an economic windfall for these families because instead of growing crops twice a year and living in a very poor way between those times, they can grow high value crops like strawberries year round. And we talked to people whose lives, it was like an American who's working in a blue collar job, all of a sudden getting a fancy six figure white collar job and it changes their lives entirely. And this is the energy ladder that people talk about, but it's so real. And it matters to people so deeply. This was one of the favorite parts of the discovery journey on writing this book. Yeah, in the book, Freeing Energy, 
you said it is difficult to overstate the impact of electrification on our culture. In many ways, electricity powered the ascent of the middle class. Lighting extended people's days. Conveniences like washing machines and electric ovens freed up countless hours of labor. Electricity made factories cleaner, safer, and more efficient as a consumer, as a resident in the United States. We take it for granted. We've been using it well, my whole life. I am not from a culture where we didn't start out without electricity. I'm really and, glad you mentioned that because the we've spoken primarily about Africa today, which is such a passion of mine. But the uh, the the real focus of the book is the business opportunities, mm -hmm. and not surprisingly, the biggest business opportunities are in uh, the U.S. and uh, Europe. Right. And uh, and it's the thing I love so much about this business and this journey I'm on is that you do you can do well by doing good. Uh, I didn't get into this because I wanted to make money. I got into this because it needed to be done. And people with solid business backgrounds were shying away from it. And I wanted to create a perspective for policymakers, for individual families, for entrepreneurs, for scientists to say, this isn't just about saving the environment. This isn't something we have to sacrifice to make happen. This is something that if we embrace it, uh, simple economics mean that everybody wins and we actually save money, whether we're in Africa uh, growing crops that couldn't grow before or whether we're in a suburban home on a cul-de-sac that's actually lowering the electricity bill so they can spend more money on going on a vacation or, or uh, getting a, a better quality food. I mean, the opportunities to embrace this next generation is truly global. And one of the reasons I decided to, as I joke, throw away a perfectly good career in software technology and jump into a space where no one knew who I was and no one cared who I was <laughs> to write a book that barely anybody wanted to read. So, uh, uh, but what a great journey it's been. And I hope that it, to, to the wonderful theme of your podcast and your audience, I hope it does make a positive imprint. Certainly that's been my goal when I started off on this. I do look at what motivates people and I, and I know a lot about business and what motivates businesses. And uh, in some businesses, many businesses and many governments are reluctant to change. Uh, you know, I, I've worked at a large company. Uh, I sold my company to IBM and worked there for years. And uh, if you show up and do a good job and you achieve your goals, you're going to get promoted. If you try to do something crazy and different that might make a big difference, if it works, that's great. But if it doesn't, you're probably going to get fired or demoted. So the risks are just so much higher if you try to innovate. And there's no industry in the United States, genuinely, not a single industry I'm aware of in the United States that is less likely to innovate than the electric utilities. And people scoff at that. And, and I really like to drive home the point of just how unlikely the utilities are to innovate. And I, and I share a story that's one of my personal favorites from the book is I, I imagine that I have this time machine. And I could go back and talk to, and I'd bring forward the Wright brothers, who I talk about in the book several times, and really heroes of mine, and and from 1920, and bring them to 2022, and show them a a 747 and an and an F F35 or some you know sophisticated jet, and say, look at the simple idea that you created back in 1920s. Look what it's become, and they would be wow. I, I they couldn't have dreamed of what their invention has yeah. created. And even better than I would go back and meet Alexander Graham Bell and bring him up to 2022 and whip out my iPhone and say, uh, Mr. Bell, that simple thing, come here, Watson, 
that you started has turned into this small device. I can dial 10 digits and reach any human being on the planet Earth within 30 seconds. I can type into it and access the sum total knowledge of all humanity over all time instantaneously. Look what you have created. And I think he would be justifiably very proud. And then I would go back to another hero of mine, Thomas Edison or Nikola Tesla and say, hey, folks, come to from 1920 up to 2022. And I would take them around and they'd be scratching their head. They look at the socket on the wall of my house and say, well, that's exactly what we did. Is it? It's not 120 volts at uh, 60 cycles, is it? Well, that's exactly the same. Oh, okay. Uh, well, but let's go look at a substation where all this stuff comes together. Well, this substation looks identical to the one we had 100 years ago. And I have pictures in my book of a substation from 1920 and 2020, and they look identical. And I would say, say, well, show us your power plants. And so we'd go look at a coal plant. And they'd say, well, gosh, you know, they were 25% efficient when we were uh, doing this. And now they're 31% efficient. But gosh, you know, it looks the same. It works the same. It's, it's, I guess there's some differences. But this is all you've done. How come the Alexander Graham Bell and the Wright brothers, all their stuff just transformed and reinvented and changed society? And we're exactly the same. What happened to us? And then I bring in another one of their peers, a guy named Sam Insel, and say, well, this guy right here, Sam Insel, convinced the United States government um, to make electricity a regulated monopoly. And uh, so guess what? The good news is, you know, how many people who listen into your podcast would like this deal? Hey, you can start a business. It doesn't really matter whether your customers like you or not. It doesn't really matter whether you do a good job or not. Your profits are absolutely going to be guaranteed to be some of the highest profits in the country. If you make a mistake or you need to buy more things, you just raise the rates to your customers and you have a product that they absolutely demand. And in return for that, you have to provide your product to everybody. And if there's people that can't afford it, you kind of have to help them. Uh, but generally, that's the deal for a century now that the electric monopolies have. And good news, it's worked. Virtually every American and most Europeans have access to affordable, reliable, safe electricity. And safe being a thing we take for granted. It's very safe. It wasn't safe back in Edison's day. But the problem is the industry is atrophied. And really, the, the reason that I thought this book needed to be written was to tell people, innovators who want to be disruptors, but to tell people who just live in a house every day and turn the lights on and want it to turn on, they'd like their bills to be lower. They'd like to think that the power plants are cleaner. And this freeing energy was really my journey into discovering not only is that possible, uh, but how individuals, families, consumers, moms and dads, uh, you know, college graduates, how they can play a role in doing this, uh, particularly if they want to be innovators, but just as general everyday citizens and families, they can actually make a difference, a big difference, much bigger than they think. And that's why I took a couple of years off of my career to write this book. And what a joy it was to write it. What a journey, all the people I visited that inspired me. Uh, but hopefully some people will read the book and, and get excited about the, some, this is something they can do. They can make a difference today, much more than most people think. Bill and I talked about my concern with fire catastrophes due to fallen electric lines sparking the dry vegetation. So why do these catastrophes continue to occur when money can be spent to bury the lines, or moving more quickly to alternative energy as climate change is happening now? They're not going to change even with these catastrophes. Let me tell you some of the things that I learned that will surprise you. Electric utilities uh, have done things that are very unsavory, and, and they should be called out. And Many times they are. Thank goodness for there's still uh, investigative journalism in the United States, uh, even though it's getting scarcer and scarcer with local newspapers shutting down. But by and large, most of the people I've met from utilities are really good folks. They they want to do well. They feel like they have a critical role to help society. 
their 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 fathers and mothers and their grandfathers and grandmothers they've been doing the same thing usually multi-generation families in these utilities uh and so they they kind of struggle to see beyond the blinders but the thing that people really miss is that utilities are actually in a way government departments and and the reason that sam insold got excited about and convinced everybody to create regulated monopoly utilities was that governments didn't want to write the big checks to build the big power plants because you have to tax everybody and nobody wants to pay taxes to build a nuclear power plant because it's so expensive. So he had this idea, we'll, we'll make the utilities businesses uh, and then they can access lots of capital through their shareholders and therefore we'll build out this giant grid because these are businesses, not government entities. But of course, everyone was concerned because businesses uh, will just be profit grabbing. So here's the rub that people miss that what's installed when you say a regulated monopoly over every single electric utility in the United States, there's a regulatory group. And that's a group in the, like in Georgia where I live, it's an electric group of five people. And those people are the ones that are telling the utilities to build out their, uh, their to build their lines above ground or below ground or to build a nuclear power plant or to get rid of the coal plants. These are the people that actually uh, drive the utilities. And, the util and they tell the utilities expressly legislators and public utility commissioners say utility mrs utility mr utility here's how you're going to make your profits and so when the utilities do things that uh increase their profits it's not because that's the only option they have it's because the regulators are telling them this is your option and so the regulators in california decided not to push the utilities out there to bury more power lines and 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 i'm not this is not about casting blame this is actually a good story because like in about 25 states in the United States, including Georgia, public utility commissioners are voted for. I lived here for a long time in Georgia before I had any idea what a public utility commissioner was. Uh, but there's a section of my book called the 201 people, 201 people that control nearly all the electricity regulation in the United States. In California, they're appointed by the governor, but still it's political. You can influence it with your voice as a citizen in a way that nobody understands. Mm -hmm. These are the people to write letters to. And by the way, they almost all have open hearings. So if you want, if you think that there should be underground uh, transmission wires, which are sadly very expensive, but if that's something you think that you should have, you can walk into the Public Utility Commission office. You can hand them a letter. You can sit in, in a hearing. Uh, and this is where the decisions get made. It's not as much as people think in the ivory tower headquarters of utilities. That That is obviously some decisions are there, but unlike most other businesses, as, as consumers, you can influence the decisions more directly uh, and more actively than almost any other industry. So that's crazy cool that people don't know about it. And it's easy. There's yeah. lots of places online you can find who your commissioner is, uh, how to reach her. What, what, you know, how, what's your email address? And I tell you, I, when I went to a, a public utility commission meeting in Georgia, I was the only person that didn't work for Georgia Power in the room. If I had stood up, they would have listened to me and they'd been happy to listen to me. This is one of the coolest things that no one gets. You can make a difference. Why the title Freeing Energy? I spent a lot of years of my career in tech marketing. And so I'm a big believer in finding the right set of words that word choice can make a, an outsized difference on how people perceive things. So I spent a lot, a lot of time answering that question, Catherine. You know, what is the title? What should it be? And my goals were to have it be an action term and to have it be just two words. I knew I wanted either energy or power. 
and energy was a better word. Freeing was the real fun one because what I what I'm trying to say is that energy is locked into uh, monopoly and public utility commissioner and legislation. It's it's this incredibly innovative opportunity that's just stuck. It's stuck in a system uh, that's dominated by incumbents like the utilities that don't want it to change. And the book's entirely about how do we free that energy, the business models, the technology, the the profits. You know, solar is cheaper. So wouldn't it be great if you and I were getting the profits from solar rather than your utility getting the profits by building a giant solar plant? Someone's going to get the profits. Uh, it'd be better if it was you and me and, and, and particularly families that, uh, that are struggling to meet their bills. Wouldn't it be great if they got the profits from cheaper solar rather than their utility? And so freeing energy touches all that by freeing it from a system that's out of date, overdue for big changes. The subtitle, How Innovators Are Using Local-Scale Solar and Batteries to Disrupt the Global Energy Industry from the Outside In. Wow, this is so interesting. So are solar panels affordable where you live? I would love to hear from you, so please email me or direct message me regarding solar panels in your area. Next week, Part 2 with Bill Nussie using local-scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from the outside in. (laughs) So exciting. Great information. Learn more about Bill and, of course, his book, Freeing Energy. Go to freeingenergy.com. You can also learn more about Bill and his work by searching Bill Nussie, B-I-L-L-N-U-S-S-E-Y. Again, part two next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to download, subscribe, or follow this podcast. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?